I have the pleasure of teaching on Jonah, and I can't outdo, yes, good, I can't outdo what was done over this last week, uh, so I'm not even going to try. In fact, uh, the entire book of Jonah was taught to not just our children, but other children in the community, and that's such a life-lasting event. Um, I'm going to teach just, well, not just, but pretty much just on chapter 2, which is Jonah's prayer, the, the prayer that he does from the fish, from the whale, whatever that beast was. I've been corrected back there, it's a fish. <laughs> and chapter 2 is Jonah's prayer. He, he, uh, he does something that we all should be doing. And, and often, and that's praying. Um, perhaps if he spent a little more time praying before uh, he was caught by a fish, that it wouldn't have been necessary. Uh, God uses prayer. Uh, prayer, as Jonah sees in chapter 2, it's an opportunity to discover, to discover um, probably again, the value of prayer. That's, that's what we're going to be looking at, is the value of prayer that's seen in not just chapter 2, but a little bit of chapter 4. There's two prayers that happen in the book of Jonah. Um, prayers are throughout the Bible, uh, both Old and New Testaments. Uh, David was a great man of prayer. I mean, most of the Psalms that he wrote were him crying out to God, looking for relief. Um, the Apostle Paul is often praying, usually intercessory prayers, which are a type of prayer and good to, to recognize and know. We frequently, as Jordan did this morning, pray for others. You know, the Swanson family uh, is in strife. And um, our prayers aren't necessarily going to solve anything. That's not our job, that's God's. And that's why we pray to God. God, we're looking for a solution here. Uh, or at least why things are happening. Uh, so intercessory prayer is fantastic. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians are all examples of this where Paul is praying that God would grant them, uh, his audience, wisdom or knowledge. Um, or kind of a really big one is power of the Spirit power of the Spirit in these people to gain those things, wisdom and knowledge and, and other things. And perhaps the most memorized prayer is the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we usually start a sermon with a prayer. I'm going to start this sermon with the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and I'm going to, to do this out of the ESV version because it's slightly different than what I learned growing up. Um, and I know what will happen. As I'm praying this, you're going to pray the version you learned. And that's fine. It's absolutely fine. It could even be that you will follow this sermon, if you open up your Bibles to Jonah, that you're going to have a different version than the ESV. And you're constantly translating from the book you're reading to what is being set up here. Um, and, and it could be a very enlightening thing to do that, that you're you're having to pay such close attention to the Word that you're picking up things you didn't pick up before. So being out of different versions of the Bible is, is I think, a good thing. Uh, so let me just pray the Lord's Prayer, as it says in ESV. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then it's not in ESV, but many Greek transcripts have these words. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Why do we pray before we even start a sermon? It's because we want the accuracy of God to be present. Foremost. The main thing. Because that's what prayer is. And if you're preaching prayer, how do you not say, I want God glorified. I want his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's what we did. So that means the sermon should go perfectly, right? <laughs> Thank you. Except for the nose over there. <laughs> you know, and, and Jesus is telling us to pray this way. But that doesn't mean that that prayer is exclusive, that the only way to prayer, pray is the Lord's Prayer. It's the style, it's, the, it's what you're finding in that prayer. If Jesus were telling us to be saying just that, we wouldn't have any other prayers in the Bible, but we do, we have a lot of them. So we're going to look at this prayer in chapter 2 in the book of Jonah. And certainly the central theme of Jonah, the entire book, is God's compassion. And you'll see it as, as we work our way through. But the point of chapter 2, I think, or the aim that I'm shooting for here, is that what should be at the heart of all prayers is the heart of those praying them. Again, my heart is what needs to be at the heart of my prayers. It's not the subject. It's not the object. God is. But where my heart is, is what's going to lead the prayer and what's going to enable me to hear a response. Prayers being a conversation between you and God. And I need to give a perspective or context of the prayer. So I will give a quick summary of chapter 1. It's what leads into uh, needing to pray, pray, what happens in chapter 2. And the first three verses of chapter 1 is God telling Jonah to go to Nineveh and Jonah fleeing from that assignment. Okay. Jonah is already a great prophet. He's already known his job, he's been told to speak the word of God before. He served under King Jeroboam II. In First and Second Kings, the, the Bible's very clear about different kings. Who's, who's the good ones, who's the bad ones? And he uses this expression that either you walked in the ways of the Lord, these various kings walked in the ways of the Lord, which was the good kings, or did evil in the sight of the Lord which were the not-so-good kings, the ones God was actually displeased with. And Jonah, I mean, Jeroboam II was of the latter. He was not a god who walked in the ways of the Lord. He was not a king who walked in the ways of the Lord. He was not a god either. Um, and nonetheless, God used Jeroboam II to expand Israel's boundaries. 
750-ish B.C. Israel had come back out of um, captivity and Jeroboam II made the boundaries just about the same size as Solomon had done previously. So you would think he'd get big billing. But he did this uniquely when God wasn't pleased with him. But God is pleased with Israel. So he has his purposes that we don't always understand them. He decided to do this way. And 2 Kings 14.25 tells us that this expansion was according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah. He's a big deal. Okay? He would be known around the peoples of Israel. It's not like today. You're not on TV. He's not, his face probably isn't known. He isn't recognized by sight. But what Jonah has done with King Jeroboam II is more than likely known by both Israel and all the people that Israel threw off of their lands or what they thought were their lands. So again, as we see in those first verses, Jonah tries to escape this assignment. Not only does he not go to Nineveh, which was the assignment, but he heads in the complete opposite direction. How many of us, when tapped on the shoulder by God, run, try to brush him off? It's like, no, he must not be talking to me. I mean, I can tell you from my personal experience, that happened a lot before salvation was known by me. I was close to 40 years old, and God tapped on my shoulder, in retrospect, a big number of times that I decided not to pay any attention. But out of compassion, God persisted. He wanted me, he knew he was going to have me, and he insisted that I listen doesn't mean his compassion is gentle. It wasn't. But it is compassion. It would be the opposite of compassion for God to leave me in a state of spiritual death. So compassion isn't always friendly, but it is always fruitful. Verses 4 through 6 show us the turmoil that Jonah put himself and others through in his defiance. He had gone down to Joppa, and boarded a ship to Tarsus, which is, or Tarsus, just somewhere over by Spain, it's thought. And he went down to the bottom of the ship and slept through a great and mighty storm that the Lord had called up. It's interesting that the pagan sailors all cried out to their gods, their pagan gods. But the prophet Jonah, a man who speaks the word of God, already has the great reputation that he does, he sleeps the bottom of the boat. And the boat's being tossed and turned and, and lots are cast uh, to discover that Jonah was the one who brought this evil upon the sailors. So a pagan ritual of casting lots, God used even that to let the sailors know, hey, this was Jonah. And then the sailors, they didn't behave how I think I probably would have. Once they knew that it was Jonah, that's when the story gets real interesting. I would have thought that, man, they'd just throw him overboard, the, 
the moment they find out, really, you caused all this? You who was sleeping in the bottom of this boat while we're rowing and doing everything we can to keep this ship upright? You're out of here and toss them overboard. They did not do that. Instead, they asked Jonah, well, who are you? And Jonah tells them that he's a Hebrew and he is fleeing from the one true God. It's quite a, quite a statement to me made. And starting in verse 11, we learn more about the crew. They feared Jonah's God. And even though Jonah was um, telling them to casting him overboard is going to be the solution to their problems, they didn't want to do it. They were very reluctant. They tried everything without success to make it to land. They rode, they jettisoned cargo, they did anything they could to not have to throw this guy overboard because they feared his God. And they ended up having to do it. And the moment they do it, the seas calmed. It didn't take, you know, we'll wait till tomorrow or anything like that. It was, a, boy, hit the water, make a splash, and then everything calms down. So they, they knew that Jonah's God was in control. And this caused them to offer up prayer, uh, a prayer of salvation. Uh, they offered up sacrifices, and they made vows. Sounds like, some, like a revival happened on that ship, both for the crew and the captain. And here is what is going to start Jonah's prayer. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And this is the verse Jesus points to in Matthew 12, 38 to 41. I'm going to turn there. If you want to join me, it's Matthew 12, 12, verses 38 to 41. There's a seagull in my light. <laughs> then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be there three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jonah's in the fish. He's in total despair and he begins to pray. As I read it, in the actual chapter, um, hear and keep in mind that this is not a prayer of gratitude for the salvation of the sailors. Could have been, maybe should have been, but it's not. It's a prayer of gratitude for the salvation of himself. It's a prayer for the saving, or gratitude for the saving of Jonah. And it's not a prayer of being saved from a great fish, but of being saved by a great fish. So I'm going to read chapter 2 in its entirety, and then we'll get rolling. Back out into the light. 
Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again, or yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O oh, Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And verse 10, not part of the prayer. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. So I think this prayer is structured in, in three parts. Verses 1 through 3 is Jonah's condition. Verses 4 through the first part of 6 is Jonah's call for help. And then in verses 6, the second part of 6 through the end of the prayer is the result of God's response. May I also comment that the structure of the prayer is written like a psalm in poetry. Uh, when in that fish, I don't think Jonah had a piece of paper and a pen or a pencil to write in this kind of a prose. Um, so likely it was written after he was out of the fish, like in memory of what he had said. And I don't know who wrote the book of Jonah. Uh, if it was Jonah himself, he remembers what he prayed and took the time later to write the prayer down. Could be a good lesson to us. I journal prayers a lot, usually as I'm praying them, but then I go back and I look at them. And I think, well, what was going on? And sometimes it only takes a day and I want to go back and look at it. Other times it'll be years past that I'll look at a prayer. Think, wow, Lord, you really brought me through that. I, I needed it at the time and you delivered. So writing it in um, after the fact is okay. Uh, and if somebody else wrote this book, they still got the heart of what Jonah was praying. They didn't change the prayer. They, they more or less edited it to, to make it look better. Um, either way, whether it's somebody else or Jonah himself, the, the fact that it's written after the fact in this type of a prose, I think glorifies God. All scripture is God-breathed, even if it's written in the past or from the past. Um, and it would make sense if it's God breathe that he would glorify himself to our benefit okay. so right away we see Jonah's condition of distress those are his words I called out to the Lord out of my distress well that's perfect Jonah understands the need to call out to the Lord especially when things are not going well it's a picture of faith Faith includes confidence that the Lord is in charge. In charge of what? 
absolutely everything. It's his. He created it. He's in charge of it. You don't even have to like it. I do, but he is. It's just a fact. Why would we not always make our first cry to the Lord? It's the one that makes sense. It's the person, it's the God. Who can do that? Who can, who can give you what you're looking for? I'll share a little story uh, from my youth. It's a little embarrassing, but you'll get my point. You'll see why. Um, I was about a dozen years old, and my buddies and I, we were riding our bikes from Roner Park. I know through Santa Rosa, I don't remember the destination that we were shooting for, but we were going down Santa Rosa Avenue, and this story is so traumatizing that I can't remember where we were going. I, I can remember everything up to the story. Um, and on Santa Rosa Avenue, in this, if I'm 12 years old, it's in the 60s, uh, there were a lot of used car lots along Santa Rosa Avenue. And there's still some, uh, but there were even more. And they weren't the, the, the big name car lots. They were the secondary lots. Uh, so sometimes people lived on the same property that they're selling the cars. And um, other times they, they wanted some kind of security for their cars, but things weren't stolen as easily back then, or we didn't care about it as much. And they would just have a, a chain link uh, fence so that somebody wouldn't drive a car off the property, but they, they didn't need fences to keep people out. Maybe even it was a marketing strategy so you could go shopping for the car even if they're not open. Well, that's what my buddies and I did. You know, we peddled our little stingrays all the way. I didn't have a genuine stingray. The rich kids had that. I got, the, we, I don't know how I built the thing I did, but it probably came from the same junkyard that some of the cars did. Uh, so, but we're, we're still, we're 12, and we're imagining what, how, man, I want a car like this. Oh, if I could have one like that. Oh, there's a pickup. Wouldn't that be really cool to have? And, you know, you say, well, how, how's the interior? And you'd get a lot of dust on the cars, and you'd wipe off the dust, and you'd be staring in there, and it's like, oh, this one's red. This is cool. I like that. And when I'm staring inside of this car, corner of my eye, I see this blur, and the blur barked. It was the biggest dog I'd ever seen in my life. And when it exposed its teeth, its canines were like huge, six inches at least. Maybe and they weren't that big, but they were easily six inches. And man, my arm was two inches, so it was going to take my arm off nothing. And you know the old story about you don't have to be faster than the bear, you just have to be faster than one other in your group? I was slow, <laughs> really slow to see the dog coming, so my buddies were gone. I mean, they were, they were safe in a way, and there's no way I'm going to outrun that dog, and there's no leash on this dog. There's no chain to keep it from just annihilating me, and it was mad. I could tell. I know what the look of a mad dog is, and this dog had it. So I did what anybody would. I didn't do what Jonah did. I didn't cry out to the Lord. That would have saved me the trauma if I did. But I was running. And if you've ever had somebody chasing you, one of the great things you could do is you could run around a car, and somehow they just can't catch you. I don't know why that is. The dog can catch you. 
So I made not even a complete lap around this pickup that was there. And then I just made this crazy leap into the pickup where there was safety. But here's the trauma. As I was leaping, I think I was somewhere over the tailgate, I let out the biggest, loudest, clearest cry that I'm sure, I am positive could have been heard all the way back in Runner Park by everybody. One word. I cried out to the one that I thought could solve all this. And it took about four seconds to yell, Mommy! <laughs> Not what you want to say when you're 12 years old and you got your buddies with you. But I got through it. And my idiot buddies, who I'm glad I didn't cry out to them, because the only thing they responded with is I'm saying, you got to help me, you got to help me. As it came to my senses, my mom wasn't going to do it. Do you want us to call your mommy? <laughs> they were not helpful. I'm here today, I'm glad to say. The dog didn't eat me. Homework, not me. But when you're 12 years old, who can you put your faith in? Some of you, because of things like BAW, know who God is and how strong and powerful he is. And you would have been yelling out to the Lord. I didn't. I didn't know that strength. I wish I did. The next five or six years would have been great. Who does a 12-year-old put his faith in? Well, the one who's had his back for his entire 12 years of life. The answer is obvious. My mommy. I miss that woman. Yeah. Who can a Christian trust? Who can a Christian have faith in? Always having your back. The answer is easy. It's Jesus, Lord of all. He's the one. He's the point of my story. So now Jonah's in trouble, and he's calling out to the Lord who he trusts and adores. Jonah cries out twice in verse 2, and twice God hears him. Then he goes into this confession. He confesses that the trouble that he's in was brought about by himself. He's crying for help from the situation that he brought about. And that's okay. That happens all the time to us. God knows how we're going to mess up, when we're going to mess up, because he knows us, our nature. But he also knows us as individuals. He's watching, he's caring. There's probably countless times that he stops me from messing up, and I don't even recognize it. But there's plenty of times where he allows me to mess up, and he continues his compassion and he provides me a way out. But he waits until I realize that he is the answer. And most likely, I'm in prayer when that happens. You know, sure, in verse 3, Jonah says, God cast him into the deep. But he's not speaking 
as in the physical. The physical, the sailors cast him into the sea. He didn't mention that. He's talking about the situation. Because of what I have done, Lord, you have created this situation for my sake. He even told the captain throwing him overboard would calm the seas. So he knows the power of God, but he also knows that he's the one who's guilty in the Lord's eyes. And then verse 4 gets real personal between Jonah and God. I am driven away from your sight. I, Jonah, am driven away from your Lord's sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. In this prayer, Jonah recognizes that he's having a conversation with the holy God. It's not a one-way deal. And he says, I don't know, I guess I describe this uh, uh, as, as a near-death experience. That's, that's what he starts describing in the, in the next few verses, 4, 5, and 6. It sounds kind of like a person being drowned for part of it. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. It's poetic license. The bars didn't close upon him forever. David, I can't think of the psalm right now, um, said something similar that, you know, I, you brought me up from the depths of Sheol. So this, this notion about you're not really being in Hades, but it's, you could see it from where you are. It's, it's very close, but God just kind of like grabs you by the scuff of your neck and pulls you back out of trouble. And did you happen to count, catch all the downward, the spiraling that was going on here? When he ran from God, he went down to Joppa. When he got on board this ship, he went down to the bottom to sleep. Here he's going down to the gates of Hades, the, the deepest of deeps. And, and that's the ultimate home for those who run from and never return to God and eternity separated from him in damnation. And that sounds really scary. And it is. I, I would be afraid and shaking in my boots if not for me knowing that God provided the escape in, in Jesus. The good news that Jesus Christ came to save us from that peril and offer freedom from those bounds. It's the great work of Christ. So Jonah ends verse 6 with yet. And so that means this is the beginning of God's response. You brought up my life from the pit. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. And Jonah has nothing left but praise for the Lord. He has repented in prayer and has been restored. He is ready to do what he should have all along. He says, what I have vowed, I will pay. In other words, I'm going to do what you tell me to do, Lord. And salvation belongs to the Lord. Not whether I think Nineveh needs it. You think they need it. I'm going there for you, Lord. And isn't it cool that a prophet would say that salvation belongs to the Lord about 750 years before Jesus 
was brought down from heaven for mankind's salvation. I mean, it's great prophecy. It's great evidence of what Jesus was doing. Verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. hadn't thought of it, but that, that was the beginning of, I'm not going down anymore. I've been brought up from the bars of the gates of hell. I've been spewed up onto dry land. So I guess the reverse is actually happening. It's a good picture. And the Lord has Jonah back and can again use him for his purposes, the Lord's purposes. Jonah was of little use to the Lord while, turn, while, while Jonah had his back turned to him. And I say little because God did still use Jonah in part to help bring salvation to a pagan seafaring crew. So even though Jonah wasn't thrilled about it, God's still using him. And now, so to speak, Jonah is thrilled about it. Jonah is obedient, and now he's really going to be used well. But man, oh man, can he use a prophet that's willing to obey. And does he have a perfect prophet to send to Nineveh? No. I mean, we see in the rest of the book that Jonah was a bit of a crybaby, that no matter what, he always had something to grumble at. Um, but we, he's still one who has a changed heart from prayer. So whether our grumbling persists, if our heart has been changed, something's going to come out of it that's fruitful. And let's quickly look at what God was able to do with the changed prophet. In chapter 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And it's basically repeating what he said the first time, to go to Nineveh and say what the Lord would tell him to say. And Jonah did obey God, and he did deliver the message. Big city, the big deal made of how big this city is. It's a great city. Um, but the, these, the assignments there, he's willing to do it. He had not heard what the words that he was to deliver were going to be, and they turn out to be eight words. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the entire message. Jonah did, went through all this strife, all this, no, I don't want to do what you're saying, Lord. And it was eight stupid words. Not stupid words. There were great words for Nineveh, but Jonah wasn't thrilled. But now he's being obedient. And he does deliver that message. He didn't have to say how they were going to be overthrown or from where the enemy would come or even who the enemy would be. Chapter 3, verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. That was the point. The rest of chapter 3 is a great revival. We've already seen a revival on the ship with the crew, and now we're seeing a revival, or then we saw a revival of Jonah's heart in the prayer, and now we get to see a revival in this great city of Nineveh. And as we hear later, a lot of people. The people believed, the king believed, I'm not going to say the animals believed, but they were involved. They had sackcloth put on them. And the sacrifices were being made to the God of Israel, the same God who was pronouncing judgment through Jonah. And the result was the last verse of chapter 3. 
before I tell it, chapters one through three are God hitting singles. Loading up the bases for chapter three, verse 10's grand slam of compassion. God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented on the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God loves revivals. Whether it's the revival of a tiny little crew on a ship, the revival of one man's heart, or the revival of an entire city, God is pleased with those. And the whole story could have ended there, and we would have had plenty to learn. But God wasn't finished with Jonah, or with us. Chapter 4 is God still dealing with Jonah's heart. You see, Jonah did what he was told to, but he grumbled at the result. Jonah had a mat on for the people of Nineveh. Wasn't his people? I don't really know what the reasons were, but he, he didn't like them. Uh, I guess he just considered them the enemy. And the people of Nineveh were not the enemy. And people that you might get all upset with that have wronged you are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. Satan is the one who tempts us into sin. Satan's the great liar. He's the enemy. So Jonah was misguided where to point his anger. And while he had this mat on, he does something that surprised me. He prays. It doesn't surprise me that he prays, but how he prays surprised me. With everything God had done, how Jonah prays in chapter 4 was a little surprising to me. And it's the first paragraph, and I'll read it again. Well, not again, I'll read it. I'll read it again, but not to you again. Okay, chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I... Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relented from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? The Lord responded with a question that Jonah didn't provide an answer. Do you do well to be angry? In his prayer, Jonah never says, please don't relent. He's not asking for that part right now. He's not happy that God didn't, but he realizes that was God's choice, that he had already made it. In his prayer, Jonah is suggesting what God's response should be. Crazy one, please take my life from me. I can't handle this. I don't want any part of this. Taking care of Nineveh? Is that the Lord that I want to serve? Just take my life. This is the crybaby part of Jonah. In the prayer, Jonah does praise God's attributes. He has the confession of his motivation for running away the first time. And he does have a request 
odd one, but a request. So all the elements of a quality prayer are present, but God isn't satisfied with Jonah's heart. So we can come up with acronyms, ACTS, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, but sometimes they don't fit, and they certainly don't include, where's your heart? And that's the main thing. Where's your heart when you're praying these things? When you want to be adoring God and speaking of His, of his greatness, and it's not in your heart, hey, Satan's the big liar, but you're the little one. You're not adoring a God if your heart isn't adoring a God, our God. And then circumstances that happen in chapter 4. Um, God comforts Jonah by sending this plant that's going to create shade. And it, it just grows up in one day and it provides the shade. And, and Jonah's happy all of a sudden. He's comfortable. And then, and then God just creates a good wind and a worm that destroys this great plant that was shading Jonah. I, I don't know what kind of plant that was that could grow that big in one day and, or how big a worm might be that's going to destroy the plant in one day. But it is. It's destroyed. Now Jonah's back to being a crybaby. And he's back to wanting to die. You know, he's just got to stop that. And God asked Jonah again, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah decides this time he's going to answer. Yes, I do well to be angry. The plant is gone and I just want to die. And to this, God closes the story with an unanswered question that says basically, and I'll paraphrase it, Jonah, you had nothing to do with creating that plant and yet you have pity on it for it being gone. I created all you're looking down on, all this city of Nineveh, and can I not decide to have pity on 120,000 people who didn't know the evil they were doing? 120,000 people, and Jonah's worried about a plant. And God is worried. He's showing his compassion on 120,000 innocent, almost, people. Not quite savvy to their evil. Because I'm teaching prayer, I would like to bring attention to all the conversation between Jonah and God and say that's what prayer is. A conversation between a person who prays and God. It's not a monologue. I admit that it certainly feels that way at times, when I'm spiritually dry, it feels like a monologue. In those times, I feel like I'm doing all the talking and nothing's coming back. It's like it's empty words. And they, they probably are very empty when my heart's not in the right place. But when I'm not dry, I'll tell you what it feels like. This is for me. I feel the hand of God lift me. He lightens my heart. He fills me with His Spirit. Sometimes in prayer, when my heart's in the right place, specific scripture will come to my mind, or maybe parts of worship songs will come to my mind, which is really interesting because I can't, I never remember the words to songs. 
But in prayer, they are coming back to me. Not the whole song. That's, that's a stretch. But maybe if I prayed about that, it, it could work out. Sometimes clarity of a situation follows the prayer. Well, comparing Jonah's two prayers, chapter 2's prayer of revival and chapter 4's prayer of complaining, a complaining heart, you can conclude the difference between fruitful prayer and dry prayer is that tangible heart. It's the heart is the difference. And here's the really great thing. I did a Biden on you. I started whispering. I'm sorry. Here's the really great thing. God is so willing to fix our heart and we don't need to go to the extremes of getting caught by a fish for him to do it. Instead, try this simple idea. Go to God in prayer and ask for a pure heart, one readied for service to the Lord. Your prayer could look like this, not in words, but in structure. Recognize God's power to change you. Confess it needs changing. Give thanks for all he has done to give you the heart you have and have known. And ask for the heart you want again. I mean, isn't that the promise of Matthew 7? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And then down in verse 11, um, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give you good things to those who ask him? So let's ask him right now. Let's ask him in prayer. Lord God Almighty, you are maker of all things. You are sovereign over all good and all evil. You are everlasting, Alpha and Omega. From the beginning you have known the end. You, Lord, are our refuge. In times of trial, we want to be held by you. You are our protector, guarding us against sin and sinful ways. You, Lord, are the only righteous judge. You will judge and hold accountable those who persecute your people, your church. We rest on your authority, Lord. And in our amazement, you are a personal Lord, one who cares for each of us as individuals. You meet us where we are and guide us where you want us to be. Lord, we ask you to do that for each of us that are part of this prayer. For those of us mired in sin, expose that sin and rid our hearts of the liar's temptations. For those of us running from you, Lord, block our path and steer us in the right direction. For those of us on pinnacles of righteousness, make your paths level and watch our steps closely that we should not stumble. Work on each of our hearts in sanctification to the glory of Jesus Christ, working in us by your Spirit. Amen.